This is the Annex of Sociology Podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University. Today, we discuss retail inequality through an analysis of the growth and decline of the food desert concept and public policy efforts to improve health through access to fresh foods. Activism, public policy, and inequality stay with us. Today, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Ken Cobb, Professor and Chair of the Department of Sociology at Furman University. Ken conducts research in food studies, the sociology of consumption, race, urban sociology, social movements, and health, which are all important for his new book, Retail Inequality, Framing, Reframing the Food Desert Debate, published in late 2021 by the University of California Press. Cobb is also author of Moral Wages, The Emotional Dilemmas of Victim Advocacy and Counseling, published in 2014, also with the University of California Press. It's a pleasure to talk with you, Ken, and thanks for being here. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed reading your book. My personal history in graduate school, I was involved a little bit with an organization that actually did an analysis of all of the places you could buy food in East Nashville, Tennessee, while I was in graduate school. And reading your book gave me a real flashback moments, but also some cringe moments where I thought, oh, I have participated in some of these very things that, uh, that you're talking about. So help us understand your book is about food deserts and you address questions about how this concept gained so much traction for policymakers and social movement groups and about its use by residents of food desert communities themselves. So let's start at the beginning. For those who don't know the concept, what is a food desert? And where did this idea come from? Well, it's strange that it the phenomenon has been around for a long time. I mean, there's been the uneven distribution of healthy food across urban areas for decades. But the term itself was actually coined in Scotland in the early 1990s. And it ended up in a UK health report in um, a little mundane policy brief about uh, public housing and the lack of grocery stores near it. And they used the term food desert. And that it came to the United States and within about 20 years became the center point of a multi-million, $400 million federal initiative, the Healthy Food Financing Initiative, is really pretty stark. You don't see concepts make the jump from the policy side or the academic side into the conventional wisdom and the conventional discourse that quickly. Ever since then, there's, there's been a number of debates about what to call it. I'd like to think the book is, is largely about the rise and fall of the food desert concept. There's been a lot of critiques of it lately. There's a whole subgenre of the field of what to call it. Should we call them food deserts, which according to the USDA were urban areas without easy access to a grocery store more than a mile away, but also with high rates of poverty and low rates of access to vehicles. And so this is what made it really easy to map onto census tracts because you could sort of tick some boxes. Is this a low access? Is this a low-income community? Is there a grocery store or not? If so, then it's not a food desert. If yes, then we can put it on a map and put the color red on it, and we can call it a food desert. Uh, since then, there was uh, lots of debates about, should we call them food swamps? Because they actually are filled with food, but they're just not very healthy food. So fast food, convenience food. Another player became the food mirages, which was that they were filled with healthy food, but very expensive, inaccessible food. So a high-end farmer's market or a Whole Foods might be next to a poor community, but even though they live close to it, they can't afford to buy the products in it. More recently, the term food apartheid has come along. And I think this is a, a better step because it's gotten into the 
the policy implications that created these areas. So why is it that some areas have grocery stores and others don't? It's not just a random occurrence because we can see there's clear correlations alongside race and income. And so tracking it back to policies of the past, this is redlining, the transportation projects involved with urban renewal, urban planning, white flight to the suburbs, all these things were the precursors to the creation of areas without grocery stores today. I, the thesis of the book is that it's bigger than just food retail, and there's reasons why we were so enraptured by the healthy food framing of this issue. It also, if you're thinking back to your grad school days, it's also came along with the creation or the development of some pretty high-end mapping software. So the GIS software that you were probably using in grad school, maybe Esri or something like that, that enabled you to map or do a food atlas of your area, um, that mapping software was largely inaccessible about maybe 15 or 20 years earlier. And so sometimes if you got a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And so the, uh, there was the, the emergence of what I call the GISification of social problems and that uh, it's not really a social problem unless you can map it. And if you can map it, then you can communicate it really easily and it seems very intuitive. And the food desert concept or the idea that the lack of grocery stores is what's driving poor health outcomes, really what has captured people. And it's, it's still, even though there's a lot of debate over the terminology, if you do a, a Google News alert like I have, it's still widely used across the country in local and city papers, in municipal policy discussions all the time. And so that's where it started. And it's really, it's amazing that it arose so quickly and captured the public attention. And then it's also pretty amazing that it's it stuck around, even though the empirical support for the idea that the distance to healthy food determines your diet fell apart almost about 10 years ago by now. So a couple of things. I mean, the, the idea that if you can map it and show like this is where it's dark red, so that's a big problem. And then other sort of gradations makes a lot of sense. There's also sort of the ecological fallacy, which I think your book is a case study of, in part, that we think that distance determines behavior. At least that's the assumption that's underlying kind of this idea. But maybe we can follow this line and say, how do you explain then the quick uptick of the idea that inequalities in health specifically could be fixed by adding grocery stores to mostly black and mostly poor neighborhoods? Well, the reason why I'd say it caught fire so quickly is that, well, this has been a problem for a really long time. The idea that people have uneven access to food is, is nothing new. If you think about the civil rights movement and the lunch counter sit-ins, uh, we don't think of that as a battle over food access. But in a way, it was. It was just food as a form of retail and people wanting to exercise the fundamental consumer right to spend their money where they please. And so restricting the retail sphere to certain people has been something that poor Black neighborhoods in the United States, especially in urban areas, have been complaining about for a long time. And they complained about the insurgence of liquor stores and the preponderance of pawn shops and payday lenders. And they were just largely, honestly, ignored. And it wasn't really deemed a problem because uh, we could talk about it in kind of colorblind language of, well, the market doesn't see color or supply and demand aren't motivated by race. People are just trying to make money. If you could make money there, then, then it would happen. Um, but then all of a sudden, once you started to frame it around food, then the solution, better food, brought in a lot of new allies, largely white, middle-class, food social movements, food justice, sustainable food, local food, non-GMO food, food worker rights. There's a whole panoply of social movements that are evolved around food that are looking to do good, and they may not feel comfortable talking about things like systemic inequality or 
poverty, but hey, a farmer's market, I like farmer's markets, let's get one of those. And so part of the book is really even tracking my own kind of misunderstanding at the beginning is that that's why I chose this as a topic. This is why I, I wanted to help people in my community. I've been helping a couple of neighborhoods near where I lived with some battles with the State Department of Transportation who was trying to tear down some bridge and we got involved in a federal lawsuit and we were just constantly trying to bang away and, and get some public attention with very limited effects. But whenever I was at a, a community meeting or a neighborhood event and the issue of grocery stores came up, then it was like public leaders were just, you know, prairie dogs, like peeking up out of their cubicles. They just started looking around and getting really excited. Like, what can we do? Let's get a commission. Let's, let's get a consultant. Let's find some way. There's got to be this corner lot. It's empty. The city will buy it up. They'll tear down the strip mall. They'll put out a call for proposals to get a, a grocer to come in. I mean, just pulling the lever of public influence and funding and research that these communities had never been able to do with such success. And it was because public health is a pretty powerful tool. If you can frame an issue as this is a public health issue, and there's a history of that in United States politics, is that once a social problem becomes medicalized, then the levers of research and funding and the coffers of funding just open up. Right. Now, that is fascinating. The shift from the concern over bad retail, you know, pawn shops and liquor stores and, and payday lenders and things. And once you put the health frame on it, you know, the kind of the floodgates open. Well, I'm curious about these two adjacent Greenville, South Carolina neighborhoods that you studied. What can you tell us about Southern Side and West Greenville and how you approach this? Um, and before you get to that, one of the great parts about this book for me is your really your long-term and multi-faceted investigation of this. Like, I think this is really one of those projects that that shows how helpful it can be to be immersed in a setting and with communities for like a long, longer period of time. You know, obviously not everyone has the conditions in which to do that. But to me, this is one of those books that really shows the significance and importance of being embedded with folks, you know, working alongside them and really trying to come to understand in a really profound and deep way what their actual needs are, concerns are, and how in this case mistakes were made in thinking about grocery stores or fresh foods is fixing fixing these kinds of problems. So what can you tell us about the neighborhoods and, and the methods for your project? Well, it has, at this point now, I'm going to a Southern Time meeting tonight. There's an affordable housing project that the city's trying to get through and the neighbors, some other side of town doesn't want it because it doesn't have enough parking and parking is just such a problem. Parking requirements is such a problem. But it's been about 10 years and I teach courses on public sociology I try and teach students and methods on community-based participatory research. And I came to this neighborhood as just, I'm a sociologist. And so when I first joined the neighborhood meetings, it was 2012, they were fighting over this bridge that the State Department of Transportation was trying to tear down. And all I could do is basically say, the problems that you're talking about are real and there's data to back it up. And all you need is a little bit of data to confront these policymakers or bureaucrats that your side of the story has evidence behind it. And it's not just a hunch. And a lot of the data is pretty easily publicly accessible. You're talking about census, American community survey data, demographic data. We had students go door to door and do surveys about uh, residents' needs. And just once you had a tiny little data set, 
nothing that would get you into like ASR or anything like that. But it, it's powerful in the public sphere and that it transforms an opinion from neighborhood leaders into an argument. Mm. And so that's once we the bridge fight was over and it took forever, we eventually got a pedestrian bridge to replace it. But I just asked them, like, what's the next problem on your list? Like, what do you care about? And it was the grocery stores that came up. A grocery store nearby had just recently closed and it was causing a lot of inconvenience. And also what I didn't realize at the time is that they realized that they had kind of stumbled on a really powerful talking point and that all their other complaints about the bad retail that caters to vice exploits the poor that was on their side of town. The city leaders largely found ways to sidestep it and ignore it. That's just a poor people's problem. But once they adopted the healthy food frame, they saw that it had a little bit of energy and momentum behind it. And so I started going to neighborhood meetings and talking to people and starting to learn, even though I've now been in Greenville for about 14 years, I started to learn a lot more about where I lived. And so it, it made the project much more meaningful and that I could help my neighbors and but also have a richer understanding, like a sociological understanding of the place where I lived. Greenville is a classic case of the destructive consequences of the decline of manufacturing. And so for Greenville, it was the textile industry. It was the textile industry of the world. Okay, in the 60s and in the 70s and 80s, it started to die down. And by 90s, what once were some of the largest textile mills in the country were just hollow and vacant shells. This is a similar but smaller version of Youngstown, Ohio, and the loss of steel mills, Detroit, and the loss of car manufacturing. Cities in America, for the most part, were largely built around work and purpose. And for Greenville, that was textiles. And when the work and purpose went away, the jobs go away, the demand for housing drops, you get excess housing supply compared to demand, you get the spiral of urban decline, you get the municipal, federal, and state subsidization of the suburbs and building big roads that pave the way out to communities where white enclaves can encircle themselves with gates and shelter themselves from the declining aspects of the city center. You get urban renewal style transportation projects, which bisect and carve up neighborhoods. And so what was in Greenville, diverse, integrated, still within the pre-civil rights era of systemic racism, but communities that were 40% white, 45% white, jobs go away, white flight ensues, the demographic proportions shift to 85% black, 15% white. You get entrenched, segregated residential poverty, and you have this stale, slow motion collapse from 1990 to 2010, when these two neighborhoods in 1960 had three times the population that they do today. And now, once property values hit rock bottom in 2010, and you had this larger American phenomenon of returning to city centers, new urbanism, revitalizing Main Street, the beginnings of the decay of the suburban infrastructure. And what makes gentrification possible is the prior decline of these cities. So the empty mills that sat vacant for 20 years become great real estate speculation opportunities. They are now all being transformed into condos with commercial on the ground level. And so this phenomenon, Greenville is a small city. And small cities face their own challenges because they don't have the population density to support large-scale public transportation, which was one of the easiest solutions to food access problems. And small cities, they don't get all the public attention that you would think. The main food desert stories, uh, headlines of 2010, sort of the heyday of the food desert concept. You're thinking Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, boroughs of New York City. Greenville doesn't get told in that story, but it's still, it's generally the same phenomenon 
the, the aftermath of the collapse of manufacturing and its implications for the people left behind. I mean, one of the interesting things about your book, you talk about the movement of retail stores from the city to the suburbs, these sprawling complexes that might have a hardware store, a giant hardware store, big box hardware store next to a big box grocery store, I don't know, another large clothing retailer or something yeah, like that. Target. And really, yeah, not to mention any names, but Target, <laughs> that for folks who live out there and have easy access to transportation, this is great for them, right? But those core city neighborhoods don't have the space for those kinds of things, even smaller grocery stores and smaller retailers who need what I think your book cited like two or three acres at minimum to build mm-hmm. like an Aldi store, for example, which is not that big compared to some of these mm-hmm. giant food retailers that folks might have in mind. Well, this is the one-two punch of the creation of food deserts. And so you have the public policy, which disinvests in the urban core, basically neglects and abandons poor black neighborhoods subsidizes white flight, allows for the draining of the tax base, but also the consumer base. And so the collective buying power has been siphoned away at the same time as retail is starting to react to infrastructure and highways and highways are connected to global supply chains. And so the big box stores largely left the city center. And so if you live in a small town, you might still have an old hardware store or an old pharmacy that's owned by a family, but it's probably because they own the property, the people who run it. There's no way they can compete with these big box retailers because the commercial business model is so different. These big box retailers are offering goods at low prices because they don't need margins per item. They just can make up with volumes of overall sales and have huge wide varieties of products that enable complete one-stop shopping. And so small-scale retailers across the country were largely wiped out, mom and pop. It still works in some areas where you have the business owner is also the building owner. And it also works in wealthy neighborhoods with high population densities. So bodegas can still function in New York City. And because people are willing to pay slightly higher prices for the convenience of shopping closer to home. But when you take areas of the urban core where it's not only that the consumer tax base was drained and poor people were left behind. The American story is that the collapse of urban areas and the birth of the suburbs was also racially segregated. So white enclave communities segregated with covenants that prohibit non-whites from moving in essentially traps black residents back in the city core. So even those who had means to escape to the suburbs and start building intergenerational wealth through home ownership after the Fair Housing Act, were still largely excluded from those communities. And even if not explicitly through the neighborhood covenants, socially through the hostility they would face in those communities. And so we subsidize the suburbs. We trap black residents back in the urban core. Retail is leaving to follow into the suburbs as well. Mom and pop stores largely collapse. And the only businesses that can take their place and survive are what I call bad retail that cater device exploit the poor. Now, there's there's so much awesome work being done on sociology and other places on racial residential segregation, covenants, and the kinds of things that you're talking about. It's really a great time to be, to be studying this and learning the racialized aspects of it for sure. Well, let's get closer to the heart of the story of your book. You argue that outsiders, like activists and many public policymakers, misunderstood the problem. So what work did the food desert idea do for neighborhoods and their leaders? And what did the public policy folks miss when they focus on access to food? I mean, the fundamental question is here, 
if proximity doesn't do the trick for access to fresh foods and changing behavior, where do poor folks who live in minority predominant areas in inner cities, where do they get their food and how do they access their food? You know, if the idea is that if it's wrong, that proximity equals access and then uptake of, of healthier, fresher foods. Well, again, I, I'm not immune from this. It was a long journey. And when I, I was drawn to it, largely because I was a well-intentioned, liberal, privileged, progressive foodie. I had served in the Peace Corps as a beekeeper. I had lived on a farm, raised my own goats and chickens, and not goats, pigs, pigs, chickens, and garden. And so I, I was drawn to this idea of healthy food for reasons that it, it largely appealed to my interests, that the solution. And I was trying to do good, and, and I was reflective and aware of my white privilege, and, and I didn't want to be sort of this white savior that came in and was my job to fix everything. But white privilege can blind people. And so I would go to public meetings and I would hear this constant outcry about the need for grocery stores. And I assumed that if we could just bring the healthy food closer, that it would change people's shopping habits, it would change their dietary practices, that if we reduce the distance, their diets would change. Uh, if we built the stores, the people would come. But it took a couple of years and about an 100 hour long interviews for me to come to realize that the public voice of the food desert debate is very different from the private voice. And so I was hearing one voice at these public meetings, and I started to realize that the attendees were pretty, they were plugged in, they were socially networked in, they had a lot of connections, they knew kind of what to say, what buttons to push. And so I asked to talk to them, and then I asked to talk to their neighbors, and then I talked to their neighbors' neighbors, uh, and I tried to stretch out to the people who didn't attend the community events. And from that, I learned that people's food and dietary practices are, are largely structured around their everyday realities. And that just because there wasn't a grocery store nearby didn't mean they weren't shopping at grocery stores. The majority of Americans don't shop at their closest grocery store. They bypass their closest grocery store. And even if they don't have a car in Greenville because of the lack of the public transportation system, um, they were largely getting rides. And there was this underground informal ride network of nephews and nieces and cousins driving their grandparents and their aunts uh, to the store largely once or twice a month to do one-stop shopping at a large big box retailer. And if you think about it, so long as you can get a ride, the difference between going a half a mile or two and a half miles isn't really that big of a deal. And so I, they would, they would, they just shop like everybody else. And then I would read these, these public accounts or read news accounts of Oh, people in food deserts are left to their only options left are gas stations and convenience stores. But nobody buys their groceries <laughs> at gas stations or convenience stores. There's really it's a remarkable myth of food deserts. And it gets still repeated in about 33 percent of all media accounts of food deserts is the what I call the C store myth, the convenience store myth. There's no empirical support for this. And this isn't just me, you know, with my interviews. You can rely on these are big, bad economists have done surveyed Nielsen nationally representative data sets of 30,000 people and households and their register receipts at local food stores and matched it up with food retailers and stuff like that. People in food deserts go to gas stations and convenience stores, and they buy the same thing that I buy at gas stations and convenience stores. Uh, little snacks, uh, sugary drinks, gum for my daughter. Like that's, that's what they're for. And that's what they use. No one goes there and says, I'm going to do my grocery shopping here today. But it keeps getting repeated and repeated. And the reason why it's hard for outsiders to understand this, that people in food deserts are resilient, they're innovative, they're smart and they're savvy shoppers, just like everybody else. 
okay, is that outsiders are so engrossed in this healthy food idea of, oh, you know, a farmer's market or an urban farmer's market or an urban farm or a community garden or a CSA program, all this stuff could solve it. But it really, in the book, I give an example of this public-private side divide of the food desert uh, discourse. And in these neighborhoods, when developers would want to come to town and they're going to buy up an abandoned lot and do inevitably some kind of mixed-use development of high-end townhomes on top and a retail on the ground floor, and they're going to have a mix of off, uh, retail spaces, roughly two, 3,000 square feet, and they come to the neighborhood because they might need some help with a zoning exemption, or they might need some help with parking requirements. They need some help from the city and they need to get a blessing or a vote of support from the local community. And so these developers are largely tone deaf. They've never lived in these areas. They've never talked to any of the people uh, at the meetings, who the neighborhood residents, and they present their plans and the buildings look nice. An empty, abandoned lot that might get some trash from time to time to build something on it is an improvement. But is it an improvement for whom? And so the residents would know that if they really wanted to find out the true intentions of these developers, they could apply what I call the healthy food litmus test. They could ask them, okay, so you're going to have these condos up top, right? And they'd ask, well, how much are they going to go for? And the developers would hem and haw and go on about, oh, well, it's going to be landscaping and we're going to have these, the dumpster is going to be in the back and we're going to shield it with a nice privacy fence. And we're going to have, we're going to, we're going to fix the sidewalks and we're going to put in some new lighting around. So what was your question? And then they say, well, how, how much are they going to cost? And they would still kind of dance around the issue. So in one case, they asked one of the residents, and I, I know her because she actually works at the community gym where I work out. And at the meeting, she shouts out, so what, what kind of businesses are going to be below this ground store retail? And he's saying, well, it could be for you. It could be for any local entrepreneurs. Now, obviously, this is ridiculous because the rents are going to be three, $5,000 a month. No one in the neighborhood could afford it. And so the developer would say, well, you know, if um, this would be office space for your use. And so then she pushed back and she said, well, what about a grocery store? Why don't you put a grocery store in there? And I remember he just stumbled. I mean, it was awkward. He, he lost his breath, you know, needed to get a glass of water. And he said, well, I, I'll, I'll look into it. And, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of interest in it. And he just talked around the issue. And it was clear that he had failed this litmus test. And so the woman who, who asked it, I can't tell you her name because it's covenant, but I, I, told, I saw her the next day and I was like, look, I, I saw you at the meeting last night and I understand that development is, is way high priced and I know exactly who's, who's going to move in there and who's not going to move in there. But why'd you ask about the grocery store? Because you know, those, those little, they're little tiny office suites. Maybe you could cram a yoga studio in there, but that's about it. I was like, why, why'd you bring up the grocery store? And she looked at me and she said, it's in our neighborhood, but it's not even for us. Mm. And he won't even admit it. And he won't have the decency to be honest about what this is all about. He's just in it to make money. And so she saw through it. I had interviewed her. I knew where she shopped, the food that she ate, because we did these extensive food diaries of what everybody ate for the past week and stuff like that. Even if they could put in a small food retail in that tiny little slot. In order for it to be profitable, it would be have to be super high-end luxury goods. And even more importantly, it wouldn't sell all the things that she needs on a monthly basis, toilet paper, cleaning products. She was going to still need to go to some big box store on the periphery anyway 
where if she wanted to buy food, she could buy food much cheaper than would anything that could fit in this tiny, small office space. And so this was the public-private divide. In public, she knew she could use the healthy food test as a way to poke the bear, to let them know that, hey, we're listening. We know your intentions. We know you're really not here to make our community a better place. You're just here to make money. And we want you to admit it. And the only way they could really call them to task and get them to admit it was to ask them these healthy food questions. And so in the book, I go through a variety of these different charrettes. And some, some businesses kind of figured it out. And even if, if some businesses that sold food retail, like some gas stations wanted to do big makeovers and renovations, and they were going to be much nicer versions, but they would come in and, and say, well, we're going to have a healthy, healthy food, fresh food aisle, and we're going to have little sandwiches and salads and stuff like that. And then the residents, would, you know, they would applaud and be like, okay, you're listening to us. You, you care about us. This is retail that's kind of for us. You're listening to our feedback. This is really important. Uh, but then the neighborhood residents would also go up and be like, well, what about the regular food options? You know, the stuff that you always, you used to sell, are you still going to sell that? And once they had kind of gained the confidence and the respect of the community, then they could admit that, yeah, we're still going to have sugary drinks and we're still going to have some fried foods. We're still going to have the familiar favorites that you've come to know and love. And residents could kind of relax. And they said, okay, well, we like that stuff. We like your food. This renovation will probably be make it look a lot nicer. And so we're okay because if anything, you were honest with us. And so it was the deception and the deceit of some of these developers or mostly a product of blindness from their own privilege that they couldn't account for the fact that some of these residents, they just shop like everybody else shops, but they just want to be told the truth and they want to be respected. Yeah. I think one of the things that comes across for me in reading the book is the, is the search for dignified retail options that really represent the strengths of these neighborhoods, the aspirations of the neighborhoods and provide options that are within the price points that are accessible to neighbors, because it's kind of like a form of retail citizenship or something like that, that to be a fully functioning and legible member of our society, often today anyway, means that you have access to cash and you can spend it. It's an important way that you show that you're participating in in our society. I mean, we don't have to, we can talk all the way, all the ways that our economy is kind of worshiped as the, the most important thing in our lives. But one impact or one evidence of that, right, is in your book about how good retail stores mean you have a good neighborhood that is worth investing in, where folks are free to go about their lives and, and do their business versus a bad retail environment that has these exploitative businesses that are really almost predatory in, in some way. Well, I mean, for better or worse, we live in a consumer-based economy. And to be an equal citizen is to have equal right to spend your money as you please and to have nice options to spend your money, even if you don't necessarily have enough money to support that store and shop at it at all times. And so this is the difference between the easy talking point of food deserts was if you make it closer, people will eat it and buy it versus the more complex argument of people want nice retail options that caters to their interests and preferences, that respects their concerns, even if not all of them can afford to shop at them consistently. And why can't they shop at them consistently? Because we have a major racial wealth gap and we have systemic inequalities that deprived and drained these communities of the collective buying power necessary to support small scale, nice retail on their own. And so they can't support it on their own, but they still see that all the nice retail goes to other sides of town. 
And so this is why, you know, it's a longstanding finding in food studies is that even poor people, it's not entirely rational, but they like brand name stuff. Because to buy brand name food, to buy food from brands that you see on TV is to be an equal member in our consumer culture, that you're buying and consuming stuff that other people buy and consume. And so you are shut out and segregated and kept out of many of the spheres of influence and the institutions that hold the most respect. But when it comes to buying stuff, you can buy similar things, maybe not all of them all the time. And so the idea that retail is a signifier of the moral worth of a community, the easiest way to see it is to drive into a new town late at night. So you're driving into like a new neighborhood, a new city you haven't been there before. The sidewalks are empty. It's late. You don't know who lives there. Okay. What kind of place is this? What do you look to? What are the cues? Well, look at the stores. What are the kind of restaurants? What are the kind of shops? Are there cafes and yoga studios? Or are there quick takeout, fast food delivery, convenience stores? Do the stores have bars on the windows? Do the stores advertise cigarettes, alcohol, lottery tickets? You don't know anything about that neighborhood except for what can be bought and what is sold. And that communicates to you what this community is about. And the people who live in that community know that. And they know that everybody drives through those streets on their side of town, sees them in that light. But they themselves have self-respect, they have dignity, and they want their retail options to reflect that. And they want people to see them as they want outsiders to see them as they see themselves. And when they're not around, the placeholders are the retail outlets and the signs and the shops and the sales about what can be bought and sold. Yeah, totally right. Every time we go to a new a new place, you definitely get a sense of where the wider, higher social class places are versus where the more economically downtrodden places are. When I lived in East Nashville, there were definitely places that were more gentrified and more small car lots with I'll tote, we'll, we tote the note kind of signs. It just gave you a sense of who was shopping yeah. in that area and what how often the cars were repossessed, actually, what it turned out to be. Well, I think that's a good discussion of good retail and what it means. And your book is structured around six everyday realities that you've identified for residents of food deserts, perception, economics, transportation, social capital, household dynamics, and a taste for convenience. So I think most people will understand those first three, perception, economics, and transportation. But can you help us understand more what you mean by capital, household dynamics, and a taste for convenience? How are these at play in uh, folks' lifestyles and their ability to eat healthfully or as healthfully as they wish in the context of this debate? Well, I, I do want to step back just one little bit. And the reason why I brought in this argument about the six everyday realities is that I was trying to fill the gap or explain why all these food desert interventions for the past decade have largely failed. And so the food desert concept, the premise of it is that distance determines diet and that access to food or access to healthy food is largely a product of price and proximity. And that if you bring healthy food closer and cheaper to people, then they will consume it more often. And hopefully that will reduce rates of diabetes, hypertension, obesity. And so that that's what these interventions were after. And we tried it over and over and over again. We subsidized farmers markets, community gardens, urban gardens, grocery stores, small and large, retail and nonprofit. And there was very slight but hardly any evidence that it was actually changing the way people ate. And so when I interviewed people about what they ate and where they shopped, where they liked to shop and what they liked to eat, 
I, I learned that their food and their dietary practices were governed by these six everyday realities. And so you can think of them as sort of circuits on a switch that if you want the light bulb to pop up at the end, you got to flip all six because any one of them can constitute a barrier to accessing and, and more importantly, activating a healthy food resource. And so these everyday realities are a mix of resources and constraints that make it sometimes harder and sometimes easier to access and activate healthy food. And so the last three, social capital, household dynamics, and taste for convenience, uh, really get at some of the stuff that you can't capture with the mapping projects of food deserts. And just the GISification of the food desert problem really just created a correlation argument that distance determines diet, that price and proximity are the are what cause unequal access to food. And so I begin with social capital uh, is really just the network. And so some of the people I interviewed were really well-connected and they had, they may not have had a vehicle, but they knew someone who did, a friend or a family member or a friend of a friend. And through this social capital, they were able to cultivate an informal ride network of people willing to drive them to and from the store that cost a little bit more than public transportation, but it offered a much better service. You could get driven up to the door, you get help with your bags, there's no limitations for bags. And most importantly, you didn't have to lug all your bags all the way from the bus stop back to your house. The real problem with public transportation is not so much getting from bus stop to bus stop, it's, it's the last mile problem of getting from your house to the bus stop uh, and back. And so social capital, the people who are plugged in, were able from a variety of informal fares of either paying for gas or eight to thirteen dollars eight to fifteen dollars of uh, money maybe once a month they were able to to get help getting to the store and even if there was a bus stop nearby this informal ride network was much better household dynamics is largely a function of uh, what would it make it possible for you to actually eat healthy in your own home if eating healthy meant cooking from scratch and now you don't have to cook from scratch in order to eat healthy. There are convenient items that are pre and par cooked that are ready to be eaten that are healthy, but those healthy options are pretty expensive, okay? The convenience foods, the reheatable foods that are affordable aren't healthy. And so if you wanted to get people to cook at home to take raw ingredients and transform them by cooking them into edible meals, then you need a certain number of people in the house to actually make it worth it. So whether or not family is going to cook at home is largely a function of how many people are in the home at the same time with the same tastes. Now, you got to understand a significant portion mm -hmm. of one in seven adults lives alone. OK, over 25 uh, percent of U.S. households are households of one. And so um, household size has been shrinking in the United States pretty steadily uh, for the last 50 years. And so. If you live alone, and a lot of people who listen to this podcast, I imagine, are probably still living alone at some point, or have lived alone at their own point at, at some point in their lives, you know that sometimes cooking doesn't really make sense. If you live alone, a head of lettuce is a race to the finish. How are you going to get it in time before it goes bad? And it's not illogical; it's highly logical. If you are a single parent and you've got a kid who's enraptured with kid food, okay chicken nuggets, chicken tenders, macaroni and cheese, grilled cheese. These are the things that American culture has taught that you're, that are for kids. Every restaurant in the country largely has a kid's menu, okay? Not every country in the world does this, and we haven't done it forever. But the draw and the commercial appeal and the advertising onslaught of kid food has created a new dilemma for single parents. 
I cook one meal for my kid and one meal for myself. We're living together. We're eating apart. And so household dynamics, small households, households with single parents, the bargain or the, the contract, the project of cooking at home just doesn't make sense. There isn't the economy of scale of home well, cooking. Before you go to Taste for Convenience, will you tell us the story of how you bought a bunch of tomatoes and made tomato sauce for yourself and your household? As, a, as an experiment, yeah. I think this is a, a great story. Well, this came up in a couple of interviews or media accounts. You start to see references to, oh, these people who live in food deserts, if they would just either cook from scratch or have backyard gardens, grow their own food, and they could eat it, a community garden. And, and so probably the biggest challenge to that, although it sounds great, school gardens, community gardens are great, but the growing season isn't year-round for most people in the United States. And so what are you going to do for the three months uh, between first and last frost? And so the response by some really motivated uh, foodies is, well, how about preserving your own food? You can grow it when you can, and then you can preserve it and then you eat it round. Now, this isn't really helpful for people who, who rent or live in public housing because landscaping restrictions basically prohibit you from doing any sort of gardening whatsoever. But I took it to heart. I went to my local county extension agent. I took a home canning class. I went out to not a local farm, but a conventional farm. It wasn't an organic farm. I bought 100 pounds of tomatoes at the cheapest possible price at the height of the season. I came home. I sent my partner and her daughter, went back to Nashville to go stay with her mother because I had to put down tarps all over the kitchen because there was tomato juice splattered all over the place. And I jarred 100 pounds of tomatoes, and I made basically a year's worth of pasta sauce. And I tried to drill it down as cheap as possible. I bought my spices, uh, generic brands. You know, I didn't even factor in the cost of the jars because those can be reused. I even assumed that someone could get the pots and the instruments necessary to, to do water bath canning. I took all that out of the equation, and I just basically the raw ingredients... And I calculated what would be the price per ounce. And even after all that work and destroying my kitchen, and I basically made it look like a murder scene, I, it was still three times more expensive than anything you could buy at Walmart. I mean, it's just, there's no way you can compete because it's a luxury. Gardening is a luxury and it does a lot of goods. And school gardens do a ton of good. And community gardens do a lot of good. But not every project can solve all the world's problems. And when it comes to food access, growing your own is just incompatible with most people's lives. They don't have the time. They don't have the energy. Some don't even want to. What they want is just to be able to eat nice food, okay, on their schedule. And cooking at home would be great, but some people just don't have the time or the energy or there's just other factors of their life that get in the way. And so the last reality that I talk about is the taste of convenience, which actually isn't unique to food desert residents or residents of people who live in areas without grocery stores. It's, it's ubiquitous across of America. Wealthy people in the United States have poor diets just as much as poor people do. Wealthy people, fast food consumption in the United States goes up with income. Mm -hmm. Healthy people in the United States don't have the negative dietary outcomes as poor people because they have access to high quality education, housing, healthcare, recreation to offset their poor diets. They can buy convenient food that doesn't require a lot of preparation, that can be reheated quickly, 
or they can go and get food made by others at restaurants that's healthier because they can afford it because it costs more. And so we look to the problematic diets of people who live in food deserts, but the problem isn't theirs. The problem is ours. We're looking at them and blaming them for not being these perfect, innocent victims, desperate to try and cook whole foods at home and labor over pots and pans and make healthy food. They can't do it. It's just not practical. And not because they don't want to, it's because their life gets in the way. These everyday realities in which they live is the fabric of their lives and their eating strategies have been woven into it as the innovative response to it. And to try and swap out that thread from the cloth and sew in another one, a new range of dietary practices is completely impractical. And because their eating practices are embedded and anchored in the other contexts of their life. I mean, to me, this is, again, one of those awesome things about your long-term engagement in this and and understanding this uh, so-called problem in a fresh way. So I think one of the core themes in your book is a kind of white racial ignorance, to use a phrase from the philosopher Charles Mills. You know, outsiders, mostly white, middle and upper class foodies, very often willing to discuss food access and lament the loss of grocery stores, but they couldn't recognize this more basic problem that government policy and economic change had benefited them and harmed the neighborhoods that ironically, you know, many of them or some of them were gentrifying. And uh, I wonder if you could tell us more about this, your discussion of Unseen Greenville, the stories about one or both of the neighborhoods that you studied. When I heard that phrase, Unseen Greenville, you know, my first my first thought was, unseen by whom? You know, if we're discovering exactly. a neighborhood, who is the we that's doing the discovering versus those folks who are living in that reality? Yeah, the Unseen Greenville project was uh, started by the local paper, the Greenville News, and they did a, a series of community forums to draw out some of the problems on some of these neighborhoods. But you're exactly right. It's unseen by whom. Why is it this is now a problem worth solving? People live and see these communities all the time. They live in them. But we live in a segregated city and not everyone traverses to the other side or more likely white people don't go into black neighborhoods. And so part of this process of unraveling this problem is coming to grips with my own blind spots. Like why why was I so enraptured by the healthy food frame? Why was it that mobile farmers markets like drew me in and I did you know survey after survey of residents to figure out where do they live? Where do they come from? and realizing that it, these, it wasn't really changing any way the people were eating. And so it took me a while. I was pretty hard-headed. And you know, white privilege really does make it kind of hard to see reality right in front of your eyes. But eventually, I, I came to understand that if the premise of white privilege is that society's institutions are structured in a way to benefit white people without them recognizing or acknowledging it, then a corollary of that theory is that for something to be a, deemed a social problem worth fixing, its solution must cater to the interests of whites too. Mm. And that it wasn't until the healthy food frame came along that grocery stores became the solution, that white people came to see that, hey, here's a problem worth fixing. We like grocery stores too. A grocery store, a farmer's market. I love that stuff. Let's do that. And so it was kind of a a gateway drug into a social movement to fix urban inequality that enabled a lot of new allies to come in and talk about fruits and vegetables rather than racism and poverty. And this is good and bad. 
because the political capital was helpful and it achieved a lot of goals. The Healthy Food Financing Initiative, the statewide Healthy Food Financing Initiatives, uh, Pennsylvania, New York, Louisiana, all these things are great. Public investment is finally coming back. But it's a short-sighted approach because it pins the success on dietary change. And that if you build a grocery store and people don't come, then it's a solution. And let's you know put down our equipment and go away. We tried. But if you can frame the issue around the larger problem of retail inequality, of depriving communities of the ability to have retail that reflects their interests and preferences and that respects them as equal participants in our consumer society, then all these interventions are just doomed to fail. And so it was sad that it took me so long to figure this out, and I really should have, but it's not surprising. And it's not surprising why so many people with privilege and political capital were so slow to see the flaws in the food desert concept and that it rocketed to public attention from 1990 to 2010 to appearing in hundreds and hundreds of scholarly journal articles. And it lingers around and it's still around today, even though the empirical evidence for the idea that your distance determines diet, that people's eating practices are largely a product of price and proximity. There's just not a whole lot of evidence for it, but it still lives on in the public sphere because it's got a just got a hold on these white foodie movements because the solution is so attractive. You know, they're thinking, oh, a small grocery store in my heart of hearts, maybe it'll be a Trader Joe's. You know, anything. <laughs> that, when this problem was framed in terms of liquor stores and convenience stores, they were willing to just drive right past it. That's not my problem. But when the solution catered to their preferences, then they came to the table and said, we're ready to help. Well, it seems like there's a moralized aspect to the response. Like if there is a grocery store built or some kind of farmer's market that started in it, it doesn't continue, then it's actually a moral failing of the neighbors, right? It's not that we, the outsiders, misunderstood the problem or, you know, the food is priced too expensively or people have a taste for convenience. Everyone has a taste for convenience or household dynamics don't allow people to buy the food that's on offer or that fresh ripe tomato is not going to be available in the farmer's market from October to March or whenever. We, the outsiders, can then blame those folks who didn't take advantage of our generosity and the way we shared our political capital with them and our better lifestyles and things. So we're mistaking sort of our social class and racial privilege for a kind of moral authority unjustly. Yeah. I mean, we you could put the grocery store in there and the local residents will want to shop at it and they'll support it and they'll go to public meetings and speak in favor of it. And they will try to shop there. And even though if it's small and it's nearby, it likely can't compete on price with a big box store on the periphery. And so you're going to have the city government or the nonprofit is going to use charitable money and donations to subsidize and lower the price of the goods to make it available to residents. Okay. That's, that's a cost. The local residents are going to go shop out of their goodwill. Even poor people donate money. I talked to people who were food insecure and they would go to food pantries and they still gave away food to their neighbors. And so everyone wants to do good. Okay. Not everyone has the same means to do good. So local residents will go to that small store and they'll pay more at that store as a gesture of support, even though they know they could get it cheaper at a big box store on the periphery. But right there, you've got two levels of sacrifice. Mm -hmm. You've got the store owners are basically selling at a loss and the customers are basically paying at an elevated price compared to what they could get elsewhere. And they're both trying to do good, but that's, that's just not a recipe for a sustainable business. 
And so eventually it will fold and fall apart. And then the community members will be left holding the bag. They weren't the innocent and blameless victims that we thought they were. Where was the pent-up demand for the fresh fruits and vegetables that we've been hearing about at all these public forums? Well, talking about fresh fruits and vegetables was the only way to get you to come to the meeting. They weren't asking for help to change the way they ate. They were asking for help to improve where they lived. And that's where people who are coming in from the outside trying to help just can't penetrate into the private version of the food desert discourse to understand what it is that people really want. Yes, they want grocery stores and they want healthy food and they would love a farmer's market. That would be great. They don't necessarily intend to shop there, but it would be an improvement upon the type of retail that's available already. They may not be able to shop there all the time because they can't afford it, but they really like having it in their neighborhood. And if it can't succeed, uh, that's not their fault. They tried. They just don't have the collective wealth to do it. And the reason why they don't have the collective wealth is traced back to systemic racist policies that drained them of the population and consumer base 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. And so dealing with the structural racism and institutional inequities is a very heavy lift compared to the front stage of asking for a grocery store, regardless of how your personal behavior might change. Mm -hmm. Well, you end the book with some suggestions. So understanding that only a relatively small portion of residents have the means to buy fresh food locally, but not the access to do so, how could fresh fruits and vegetables be brought to neighborhoods like Southern Side and West Greenville for those who are interested in purchasing them and maybe either continuing to eat healthfully or just shopping more locally? Right. It's So it's, again, the, the premise of the book is that it's bigger than just food. It's about all retail amenities. But there are a number of residents who came to these community meetings, and it really was about healthy food for them. They really wanted to improve their diets. They weren't the majority, um, but it was honest and earnest, and that the distance getting to the grocery store was a real hardship. And so community groups were really looking for ways of, of that population, if they wanted it, if this is what they wanted, it, how can we put in place a mechanism to help them increase their access and more importantly, activate a resource of healthy food. And so in the book, I go through how it basically has to overcome or account for all of these six of everyday realities. So perception wise, it needs to be culturally appropriate. It needs to be something that people want to eat. Okay. Healthy versions of familiar favorites, a box of ingredients with a healthy revised mm -hmm. recipe for it. All right. So one of the ironies of my research is that even though it was a, a food desert, it was 1.1 miles away was a pretty large uh, Latino supermarket. And it's outside the sphere of the USDA definition. So it didn't pop up on the food desert maps. But most of the people I interviewed, because these are largely uh, black residents of these neighborhoods, they just didn't see it as an option. Like it, it was there, mm -hmm. but it wasn't really for them. They would go another mile to a larger other big box retailer. So it's invisible in plain sight. So perception means it needs to be culturally appropriate, cater to their preferences and tastes. Okay. Money-wise, it needs to be affordable. That's pretty easy. Uh, nonprofits can drive down the price. They can subsidize it. Box of healthy vegetables, uh, fresh food box. Transportation-wise, you can solve that by trucking it in. Okay. You can deliver it or centralize pickup points or, or drop-off points where people are, schools, churches. Um, the last three everyday realities are a little trickier. So social capital can people use their, their networks or their friends to help them activate this resource? So if they can't get to the pickup point, can they get a friend to pick up, get it to the pickup point? You got to account for the people who are isolated and disconnected. How are they going to even know about this program? How are they going to get a ride to this program? How are they going to be kept apart in the communications to them? Okay. Household dynamics would be, it's pretty tough 
a box of healthy food, fresh fruits and vegetables to a household of one is really just kind of a recipe for disappointment. I imagine some of your listeners have participated in a CSA program and they get a box of veggies and they're staring at it and they don't really know what to do. And it's just a matter of at what point am I going to admit to myself that I can throw this out because I can no longer eat it. We've done it. <laughs> and that, that applies across the economic spectrum, even if you give it to people for free. And so one way you could do this account for household dynamics is try to recreate the economy of scale of home cooking. So the, the families that, that did actually engage in home cooking that I interviewed were larger families mm-hmm. or extended families. And so they had enough people in the house at the same time with the same tastes to justify home cooking. And so if single households can't do this, to put together what I call collective meal kit cooperatives to try and create the Blue Apron style meal kit by a group of people coming together, buying in bulk. This would have to be obviously organized by an outside group that could bring in a nutritionist, recruit from existing social groups, maybe a Bible study group, a group that already exists that has a connection. Food is a pretty sensitive thing. you know. Eating with other people requires you crossing a couple of thresholds of familiarity. And so to get people to cook together would be a new skill. But Cooking is slowly becoming a lost skill in our society, and there is some value in getting people just to learn how to bone a chicken or basically make the most of a head of broccoli. And so efforts to, instead of just giving people massive amounts of free raw food, we need to teach them or give them the skills to be able to take advantage of it by recreating the economies of scale of home cooking that large families enjoy. And then the lastly, the taste for convenience. Sadly, this is going to take probably generations to overcome. And People like convenient food. They are drawn to salt, sugar, and fat. And I know sociologists don't really like to engage in biologically deterministic arguments, but uh, we are hardwired to enjoy salt, sugar, and fat. And we also are hardwired to be averse to bitter foods and foreign foods. Mm. This is unfamiliar foods can be potentially dangerous if you really don't know what it is. And bitter foods can, infants can reject them. Now, Parents can overcome these responses, and we all know through culturally acclimate ourselves, develop new tastes, come to acquire and appreciate new types of tastes. But it requires a number and repeated uh, exposures to new and foreign foods, especially to kids when they're really, really young, uh, that some poor families just can't afford. If you buy healthy food, like maybe a bitter green, and you cook it appropriately and you serve it to your young child and they refuse it, any parent who's tried it knows that it's tough. How many times are you willing to risk failure? How much food are you willing to waste before you give up and just give the kid macaroni and cheese? And wealthier families can wait it out a long, long time, and they can cultivate healthier tastes that can last a lifetime. But if you never overcome some of those barriers, those initial aversions to bitter and foreign foods, you're left trying to do it on your own in your adult years. You've already cultivated a taste. You've already cultivated a habitus, you know, that is pretty hard grain and embodied and embedded. And so any type of program that could improve access to healthy food that was provided in such a way that local residents could activate it needs to account for the everyday realities of people's lives, perception, money, transportation, social capital, household dynamics, and their enduring taste for convenience. Well, Ken, your, your book is really fascinating. There's a lot of things in the news now under COVID conditions that are relevant for what you study as far as you know consumption and food and supply chains and grocery stores. Uh, what does the situation look like where you live there in Greenville? And then what are you hearing about access and supply chains uh, in grocery stores these days? 
Yeah, I think um, it was just about two weeks ago that I started to see some empty shelves again. Uh, it had been a long time and it brought up some familiar feelings of anxiety. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't just toilet paper this time. It was sort of random goods, salad dressing, you know, just a whole aisle wiped out. And so it reminded me that, you know, the argument in the book is that people's eating habits are sort of grounded in their everyday realities. And because those realities are consistent features of their lives. But COVID introduced like a real shock to the system. The closure of restaurants, it reversed a decline in grocery store purchases as part of overall household expenditures uh, that had been in motion for like 60 years. And so we had just a couple of years earlier bypassed the point where people were now paying more for food prepared outside the home than for food in grocery stores prepared inside the home. But when COVID hit, it was like, boom, the needle just went straight north and people started buying tons of food and cooking actually again, because that was the only option available to them. But now we, we have more options. There's still more retail options and stuff like that. But the supply chain for food, you know, it's just a reminder to us that we don't need to, to reify the supply chain. Like it's just something that's out there and it breaks some sort of mechanical apparatus. Like each link in the supply chain is a human being. It's a gantry crane operator. It is a truck driver. It is a forklift operator. Any one of them gets sick. Their kid gets sick. Any one of them shows up late to work. They miss a shipment. The ship leaves the dock. <laughs> and then you got to wait till the next one arrives. And so I think it just one of the learning from these variety of different food related movements that came to the food desert problem is that I think they can teach us a lesson in that a lot of them argue that we need a much more resilient food system, that if we just rely on this big box store model, it's really efficient, it's really cheap, but it's also quite fragile. Because if you stake all of your access to food in a community on regular shipments of 53 foot long tractor trailers, you know, you miss one or one shows up late, it just creates bottlenecks and problems for weeks and aftershocks for weeks later. I mean, I think one thing we've seen in the news is just customers getting really irate at frontline workers and grocery stores and the folks at the start of the pandemic who were called essential, who we kind of valorized and some some grocery stores were giving hazard pay to, to employees. And that era seems to be over now. And uh, consumers are really having irate moments in grocery stores when they can't find the thing that they need or want is no longer no longer available. We, we see the same thing here in Abilene, the grocery stores, the major ones are, are pretty packed a lot of the a lot of the time. And, and we do have empty store shelves here as well. I mean, it makes me think about other, you know, other closures and, and staffing issues. We're recording this on January 13th, 2022. It doesn't appear that the different places are different have different experiences with the Omicron variant, but doesn't seem to have peaked here in West Texas. But we have lots of schools that are really stressed and at the breaking point with teachers being out, lots of students, students being out, and the possibility of school closures. One of the topics that's been just on a lot of people's minds is the effect of remote learning on children. You know, so much of school is being with others and sharing and things like not, not hitting people and and things like that. You know, what have you, what have you noticed? Yeah, I, I, our daughter is, her school is still going. I think they've got about a 50% absence rate. Um, oh. I think they got the janitor is teaching three classes at a time in the cafeteria, which basically just means stacking up videos wow. at different points in the room. So I'm not really sure there's a whole lot of learning taking place. And 
I am worried. I mean, obviously, as sociologists, we can acknowledge that people with resources and privilege, I think, are going to come out of this. Their kids are going to come out of it okay in terms of we have high-speed internet transmission. We have rooms with quiet places for kids to do homework. And we can recognize that if you don't have some of the basic resources necessary for learning, it's going to have a problem. And so I think sociologists of education for a long time have talked about like summer slide, send home kids, you know, you have kids for nine months and then you send them home for three months and then they come back and how much have they forgotten what they learned? And so I really think it's going to be looking back, we're going to be looking at like the COVID slide. What is it, the cohort effect, the, the generational effect? Some of these kids are going to be set back for a long time because even if it's home learning, you know, the resources necessary for parents, it's, it's just too much. And then even if you have real shortages in staffing at schools, I'm just not convinced there's a lot of learning taking place. I mean, she's benefit from being around her friends and she's not just stuck at home, you know, looking at TikTok all day. But still, I'm not convinced that there's a whole lot being done, at least right now. And, he, and, and her teachers are great. I mean, our public school system is actually quite good. And I, and I feel for the teachers. And, I, and your earlier point about, you know, yelling at grocery stores or yelling at school leaders of like, why are you shutting down schools? Like, why why won't you keep keep kids in school? You know, our kids aren't learning and stuff like that. And, you know, I think back and I just think the collective sympathy well has run dry. Like, we're just so far into it that that little experiment we had in generosity at the beginning of, of the shutdown has passed. You know, we've just drained, you know, like my past sociology life, you know, I did social emotions and and sympathy margins and sympathy credits and stuff like that. And and so I think we were willing to give frontline workers the benefit of the doubt. And that included our teachers. But we've just been drained to the point where there's just not a lot of sympathy left to give. Not because we're bad people necessarily, although maybe some of us are. Maybe I should just be more sympathetic. But it's the conditions under which people are able to be generous and sympathetic to others. Those conditions have made it so hard that the emotion work necessary to generate the sympathy to clap for frontline workers again. I think people are just too tired. Yeah, I mean, I, Jessica Clarko, folks, has been on the podcast before. And I think she was, she was tweeting earlier about how in some school districts, they're asking parents to come in and serve as substitute teachers. Here in, in Abilene, the, the local health system you know, is really stressed. I mean, my hometown of Springfield, Missouri, uh, the local health system is trying to hire college students to fill in some of the gaps in their staffing. Um, some schools are lowering the requirements to become a substitute teacher. I think Clarko was talking about how, and asking the question, what kinds of parents are going to be eligible or able to take off from work or who aren't working? Maybe they have a, a, a single wage earner you know, household. Maybe one spouse makes good money and the other one is uh, works at home, you know, what kinds of parents are going to be allowed or able to come and substitute, right? It's going to, most likely it's going to be your, your more affluent, your whiter parents who already have perhaps an outsized say in what goes on in schools and, you know, might consolidate, you know, it's kind of their power over, um, over their, their child's schooling and the, and the districts in some way. It's super interesting to look at. Uh, our son's classroom closed for uh, 10 days, and we're enormously privileged to have you know, two wage earners who have professional jobs and can make it work. But on the whole, Abilene is not an affluent community. And so it was incredibly stressful for the folks who are much less or disadvantaged and even you know early in the pandemic you know putting up wi-fi hotspots in parking lots of schools 
and yeah. you know just trying really unusual, unprecedented ways to get access, internet access to people who don't have it. Queens College students were were loaned laptops, I, I think, at the at the start of the pandemic. There was a Queens College podcast about that. Yeah, well, I think it's going to have. Again, uh, there's going to be long-term effects for a lot of kids, and it's going to take a long time to come back. But, you know, we are, we're looking at a rare snow day coming up in Greenville, South Carolina, which is going to be mayhem, cats and dogs living together, because we can't handle snow in any form. But, you know, we, they've already switched. There are no snow days. They just go to remote learning. And, you know, that's going to be an innovation that I think we're going to be able to switch to. I know people look fondly upon snow days and stuff like that, but... Like, it's nice to be able to schedule when the kids are going to be in school and when they're not and to have some unfilled days. You know, we got snow days here. When I was a kid growing up in New Orleans, it was we had hurricane days. And so they built hurricane days into the schedule of like, you know, it's, oh, well, we took three or four of our hurricane days. So, you know, we're going to end school uh, one day early or something like that. So, But there are some innovations. There are some forms of e-learning that I think can persist on a limited scale. But it doesn't match human interaction face-to-face. A lot of the hidden curriculum of these schools is you're teaching these kids the cultural capital they need to succeed in our new economy. And I know my daughter has basically learned how to evade surveillance on Zoom, uh, which actually is a quite a good skill for the working world. But, you know, I, I do. I feel for them. And, and college kids, too. Man, I, I look at them and, you know, I'm in masks and they're in masks and, and their whole experience, you know, the, the story they've been told their whole lives about, you know, go to college, it's going to be like this. They're not necessarily getting that experience. And so I feel for them and I'm trying to generate the sympathy necessary to account, you know, for all their problems. Um, But yeah, I think it's a natural experiment, man. We're going to learn a lot of things about the effects of this uh, for years and years to come. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm trying the same thing in my classes. We've mandated masks, at least for the first like couple weeks of classes. We'll see what that's like. There's a lot of controversy over whether that is enough and we don't have time to get in, into that that here. But I think you're right that the long-term consequences are going to be really significant. And we're going to have a whole cohort, two or three or more years of students who come through and their their entire trajectory is going to be shaped by this. I tell students, this is like one of those world historic events that they're going to be, yeah. when we get out of this, uh, if and when we get out of this, this will be a, a key marker in their lives in addition to the fact that they were in college. And so if they have children or other people that are young when they talk, as they talk to them when they're in their elder years, this will be a thing that is written up about, you know? And so, you know, we're always living through history, but there are some kinds of events and things that are really, you know, remarkable and mark eras. And I think we're, we're in one of them, one of them right now. Yeah. I mean, it's sad. Like these are the kids that grew up post 9-11 and the world hasn't been easy to them, you know? And, uh, but this is going to be the story they're going to be telling the rest of their lives about this period in time. And uh, I don't know. I don't I, I can't I can't predict exactly how it's going to come out. But I do feel for them. I do. I do feel for them at all levels. My daughter being stuck at home, you know, she just wants all she wants to do is just hang out with her friends. That's all she wants to do. And, uh, you know, e-learning might be a little safer for her sometimes, but it's hard. Man, raising a 14 year old is hard. So there's there's not a lot of easy answers and every solution comes with problems of, it, of its own. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, let's talk about something a little more fun. Um, <laughs> we This week was the launch of the third episode of the new Disney Plus series, Book of Boba Fett. I've been watching pretty much every Wednesday, Wednesday night. 
I found it to be pretty entertaining. I mean, I, I don't listen to a lot of criticism uh, or read a lot of articles about it, so I don't know what other people are saying. I mean, the Boba Fett character is obviously classic from the, you know, the first three movies that came out, and there, we have some more backstory from other other things. But this universe has really been filled out in like lots of creative ways, and I can't even keep up with all of the, the Star Wars uh, you know, television shows and series and things that are... Uh, are streaming right now have you been watching ken what do you think oh man i watch it it checks all the boxes for me like i just (laughs) they they got it dialed in like it's just like fine-tuned like i was as a kid i had the star wars little action figures like i wasn't i wasn't a gi joe guy i was i was star wars now i didn't i was a gi joe guy we, we played with the star wars figures uh we didn't call them by their actual names and stuff like that but i had i had boba fett i can't remember what i used to call him and there's his guards, the green piggy yeah. bodyguards. Like I had those. So yeah, I, I watch it and like I, I just I don't know, those engineers, whatever. It's on the internet. Like they're reading my email or something. You know how it's like you say something and then Google will say, like, oh, are you looking for this? And it's like, wait, I didn't type that in. And so they somehow have like access to some kind of algorithm that it works for me for like, you know, boring forty five year old white dudes. Like this is <laughs> this is my jam. So I yeah, I, I watch it. I love it. I don't even have to ask a lot of it. Like the plots are good and, and the stuff. I just want to watch it. Like it's like, ooh, that's pretty cool. I'm glad I'm glad they can do that. Cause like the special effects has come along so far. Doesn't even look like special effects anymore. And so uh I uh yeah, man, it's awesome. Yeah, so is your I wonder what is um do you have a theory about why Fett is so he's pretty accommodating in this for those of you who haven't seen it. He is this uh, warlord leader of the area of uh, most ice on Tatooine, the home, home planet of Luke Skywalker and Jabba the Hutt, who was the was the leader before Fett. But he's like super accommodating. Like people come and try to kill him and he's like, ah, it's OK, I'll let you go. Yeah, I know. I'm, he's like this Ted Lasso, but with like rocket launchers. You know, he's like empathetic and he understands and he tries to bargain and he's not you know, respects people's rights in the workplace. Like, it's just, it's pretty strange. But <laughs> I, I mean, know. he's disrespecting the powerful guys, like the the water merchant. He's dissing that guy, but he's like elevating these like, you know, teenage street toughs with uh, cyborg capacities, making them his uh, scooter riding entourage. Yeah, I don't know. They made him out. I mean, I guess that's the thing. It's like in the real movies, he was always behind the helmet, you know, and he was just hired to go shoot and kill people or bounty hunter. And so, you know, you take the helmet off and it turns out he's he's really interested in you and understanding how is your day? I mean, he's not that sweet. He'll still like, you know, club you over the head, you know, with like an electric sword. But it's just strange, like this this inner world of him. And when he did you see that, like, that monster that he got is like a present. Yeah. The Rancor. Yeah. Rancor. Okay. So he's, he's looking at it. It's like, look, he just got this crazy pit bull, like the size of a tractor trailer. And uh, he's looking at, it, he's like, ah, I want to learn how to ride this thing. And will you teach me? And I will work on this. And you know, that whole, that whole scene, I'm looking at it with Johnny Trejo and I'm just, you know, he's like a lovable pet owner. I mean, he wants to use it to like murder people, but still he is interested in like the inner life of this massive monster. And it was really touching. Yeah. He's treating the, this like, this is like a small rancor, right? So he's like a juvenile rancor, right? 
he's treating this juvenile rancor like it's a, a I don't know a poodle or something like that you know show poodle and just lovingly caressing this object of terror from the the early films so it's a it, but your idea of taking the mask off you know, reminds us of the Mandalorian right yeah the first season the guy was just completely behind behind the mask and then you know once he takes it off you know as you say there's a there are more dimensions that are available. But even that actor, even in the Pedro Pascal, I guess his name yeah. is, even that actor inside the mask, you got, I think you were meant to get a sense of his like emotional depth, even if he, um, you couldn't see his face. Um, oh yeah. Well, you knew it. I mean, all that stoic, like this is the way you knew that it was coming. Like, you know, yeah. the, the tears are going to be coming pretty soon. Like let's, let's hug it out. Yeah. They've done it well. I mean, it's, it's enjoyable. It's better than, um, I can't, all that Marvel universe stuff is like parallel universes and different timelines and different characters. And they, it's just, it's too confusing. Like I, I remember when I was a kid growing up, we had Atari and we had Nintendo and then Nintendo had like a little directional thing up and down, left, right, and two buttons. And yeah. then Nintendo switched to like six buttons and it just lost me. Like, I just can't, <laughs> like, it's just too complex for like fun recreation. And so Marvel is too complicated, but this Star Wars universe, like, I got it. And yeah, I'm loving it. Yeah. Yeah. We could say lots more about Marvel. We may have started a controversy here on the annex, is just what I'm saying. There may be be Marvel fan folk out there who push back. And we welcome all letters addressed to Dr. Joe Cohen, Queens College, City University of New York. Bring it. Well, Ken, it's been so much fun talking with you about your work. I really appreciate the book. It, there's so much depth and complexity in there. And as I was saying, like just the beauty of working with a community like this, you know, examining your own uh, assumptions, working on getting folks to really open up about really kind of intimate stuff, like what we eat, how we shop, you know, there's a lot of potential judgment there. And so the craft of your uh, research, I think, really comes through in the book. So I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us on the NX. Okay. Well, thanks for having me. And just like on behalf of all book authors, I'll say that like the greatest thing you can do is just, you read it. Like just, that's all we really want. We just want people to read the book. And so that you did that, I really appreciate it. And that you put together such thoughtful questions. I, I really appreciated that too. Well, thanks so much. You're listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University. Our interview with Dr. Ken Cobb was recorded on January 13th, 2022. The Annex is a podcast of the Queen's Podcast Network. Music by Lena Orson.